Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. This episode of Sandbox Stories features an interview with Dr. Millicent Knight. Dr. Knight has served the profession in a wide array of roles, from owner of a private practice to driving professional relations for major industry vendors. I'm very thrilled to have her with us, and I'd like to welcome you, Dr. Knight, to Sandbox Stories. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. You know, let's start with your path to optometry. You started academics at a high school that required some sort of entrance testing and it was in an impoverished community. Tell us about that time in your life. Yeah, so I, I attended a high school in an area that was not where we lived. And as a matter of fact, most of the students who attended school there did not live in the community. I'm sort of unfortunate for the, the um, children who did live in a community that didn't pass the test. They weren't allowed to go to school there. So it was a little awkward for us. Um, but again, uh, the majority of the students commuted to that school. Um, and I would say the, the student population was interesting too. It was about maybe 90% African-American students from all over the city. And then there were maybe 10% Chinese students. And that was the student makeup. And this was in Chicago? This was in Chicago. Oh, interesting. So your husband went to the same high school. Did you know him then? I did, but not well. He was he was upperclassman. He was an upperclassman. <laughs> so your husband has a story about getting into medicine. He's a physician. Can you give us a little insight on his background? Yeah. So, I mean, we like I said, we went to the same school. Um, both of us were very smart students in our, our grade schools, our grammar schools. And um, I actually was double promoted uh, from second to fourth grade. I didn't go to third grade. Wow. Um, but when I got to high school, suddenly I was with all these other kids who were also really smart. So um, it was kind of an eye-opening experience, and uh, but a great experience because it really grounded me and with uh, professors, teachers who really seemed to have a vested interest in, uh, in us doing well and expected us to do well. Um, and I say that because that's not the experience I had when I got to college. Mm. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, my, I'm sorry. He went to oh, he went to uh, my husband went to SIU for undergrad. Uh, I mean for I mean for medical school. Um, he always wanted to be a family practitioner, and his father uh, actually had gotten accepted to medical school, but was then drafted, and when he returned, was no longer able to attend. So I think he really wanted his sons to to be physicians, and um, my husband is the one of three boys who did. Which, which war did he get drafted into? He was older when he had his children, so he was in World War II. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. He never had a chance to go back, but uh, that's great. No. He ended up being a chemistry professor. Really? <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, yeah. So, so needless to say, my, my husband couldn't be too shabby in chemistry. Otherwise, you know, big reprimand. <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the smarts carried right through, obviously. Um, that's a, a rigorous area of study and expertise. Um, your family, you're from Chicago. Your dad was a 30-year postal carrier in the neighborhood near our alma mater at the Illinois College of Optometry. And you told me he was known as Friendly Bob. Um, that's kind of a there's a lot of tough neighborhoods around there, very uh, ethnic neighborhoods, very protective of each other. Tell us about how your dad influenced so many different folks in that area. Yeah, I know my, my dad um, was always this kind of person who was able to move in and out of different worlds and um, always got along well with a lot of people. In addition to being a um, postal carrier, he was military police for until mandatory retirement at 59 and a half. You know, okay. That's the time people they kick you out, I guess. Um, uh, but he, he had the same route and he walked his route. So he knew everyone in the community. He was actually familiar with ICO before I was because he used to deliver the mail to the students who lived in the area. Um, so 
the neighbors got to know him really well. He really looked out for um, everyone. He knew everyone's family dynamics. And um, you are probably familiar with the community. It's Bridgeport. And Bridgeport was not the friendliest place for an African-American person to be in. But for some reason, um, they seemed to embrace him. And as a matter of fact, when he uh, retired, they actually gave him a retirement party at the, the big um, Catholic church there in the community. Um, so we, but we did have one incident, and it actually had to do with me. Um, so I used to go and study with a classmate. Uh, her name's Dee Roder. And she and I would study together um, at her house, and she lived in Bridgeport, and she lived next door to a bar. And so my dad was in the bar one day, and the owner said, Jim, um, I hate to tell you this, but I've heard someone saying some really negative things about a Black woman that comes to visit the next-door neighbor. And I am almost sure it's your daughter that he's talking about. And he's saying that he's going to kill her for, you know, coming to the community. And so my dad told me that I could no longer go to, to Dee's house. And, you know, and he also said he was going to hurt her for inviting me over in the first place. So um, we, Dee and I said, Dee said, well, we're, they're not going to stop us from studying together. We're going to continue to study. We'll just go to my mom's house or your mom's house. And, um, but my father told me that under no circumstances could I come back to Bridgeport because if someone hurt me, he would find out who it was. He would take care of that. And, you know, it just was not going to be a good situation. So um, the last couple of years when I was in optometry school, some of my classmates would tease me about not ever coming to any of the study sessions or to anybody's house for parties. And I was so embarrassed by the situation that I never told them why. I just, you know, I just would make up some reason why I couldn't come. Um, but, you know, that was a, a, a challenging situation. And um, it was unfortunate that I think w when when um, the school talked about the community, which, you know, it had its challenges all the way around for all of the students. But I don't remember when going through orientation, anyone ever talking about um, that it was uh, a different experience for those students of color, that they would need to be careful in that particular community. It's sort of an interesting part of the your 2021 narrative that we've gotten to a point where you can feel unencumbered to tell the story, but you couldn't even to your classmates then. And I think about your dad having this relationship with the community where he was looked at and perhaps not considered one of the community, but he was the postal carrier. So he was friendly Bob and the bartender gave him this information. And yet it, in the end gives you this really uncomfortable experience and, and having to change the way you do it. I'm just encompassing all that. And I don't, I don't know what to do with that, but it, it, it's sort of my restatement and it's, uh, it's sad. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's unfortunate because you're right. The, the neighbor, the surrounding neighborhood there um, was primarily people of color, you know, was a, a butted by also an Asian community. Um, but it was primarily that parts of that community were impoverished and that was the bigger issue. You know, the, the people who were maybe unfortunately harmed in the area may have been harmed because of a robbery type situation, but it was never based on hate or anything like that. Right. And, you know, I was just at risk for that, too, you know, because right. it, you know, it was it was sort of equal opportunity from 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 that perspective. Absolutely. Um, um, I think all the students and all the dynamics of the situations in the community like that need to be pointed out because there were four other black students in my class that started with me and none of them were from the Chicago area. So they had no familiarity with both the black areas around there or the white areas around there. So being able to give more of a comprehensive orientation probably would be helpful for students in the future. Yeah. I want to say one other thing about that area too. It also had a very upper middle income community embedded right next to our school. And I think that, you know, we sort of, when, when, this often happens when you see black people, there's this sort of this blanket assumption, but there are a lot of doctors and nurses who lived in that community and were part of the, the two abutting um, hospitals in the area and they lived there for years. So, and it, cause I mean, the community was also closer to the lake. So 
It was, a, it was a, a great area. It was it was almost like two different worlds. You, you you go a few blocks to the east and you walk into a completely different community. That is very true. And yeah. what about your mom? She worked very hard when you were young. What did she do? Yeah, so I grew up on a street with, I have two sisters, I'm in the middle, and I grew up on a street with uh, where most of the mothers were stay-at-home moms. And my mom worked outside of the home. And um, I also grew up with a housekeeper, which, you know, maybe we grew up in a, you know, middle-income community. Um, the majority of the people on our street were African-American. There were two white families <laughs> on my, my street. Uh, just decided they were too old to move and never did. Um, and if you, you know Chicago, so, you know, you know the, the flight situation that, that took place um, in the 60s when, you know, my parents bought their home there. Um, uh, but anyway, my, um, my father, I guess, had grown up during the time when sometimes he was left alone and he had this whole notion about his daughters never being left alone. So in order for my mother to be able to work, we had a, we had a full-time housekeeper. Um, she didn't stay overnight, but she came every day and she wore a white uniform. She was very formal. Uh, and it was, a little different, but she was kind of like a part of the family. She was an older woman, so almost like a grandmother. And she was there. I remember her being there from the time I was five till after I graduated from college. And she only left then because she died. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> she was wonderful. I mean, she taught us uh, etiquette. She taught us how to cook. She taught us. Um, she was very particular about not doing the things that were our personal chores, you know, and I tried. <laughs> yeah, sure. Think she was having no part of it, um, but I was a. It was a great experience for me. I just felt I grew up. Um, even the neighbors in, around us, everyone knew your family rules, if you will. So if you tried to go outside, I could go outside, and we got home by three thirty. If I was outside before four o'clock, one of the neighbors would stop you and say, um, "Millie, what are you doing outside?" Uh, have you finished your homework yet? Uh, I know you're not supposed to be out before you. Yeah. So it was very old school like that. Where And you didn't dare say anything back, you know, because you know, not only would you be reprimanded by them, but then you got it again when, you know, when your folks got home. So it was just, that was just a different world now, but that's, that's kind of the way I grew up. <laughs> I want to tell you one other thing about the area I grew up in. I grew up on a street with all boys. And... They were having no part of playing with a girl. And I got really frustrated one day and I went in and I told my dad about it. And um, he didn't say anything. He just said, come with me. And we got in the car and drove to a sporting goods store. And he bought basketball, baseball, football, hockey sticks, pucks, everything. Put it in the car and we came home. When we got home, he said, now, you take your new toys outside and if they want to play with your toys, you have to play also. So that's what happened. So I went from being, um, they started to let me play, but it was one of these, you know, you, when, you, when you pick uh, teams, I'll take Scott, I'll take this, I'll take this, I'll take Millie. You know, <laughs> it went from that to, and, and I hated that. So I worked really hard and I got really good at every sport. And I went from being, I'll take Millie, you know, right off. So I learned about perseverance from that early experience, and I also learned that God blesses a child that has her own. <laughs> Did you end up playing any sports in high school or college uh, because you you developed skill? I was very athletic growing up, and I, I ran um, track and field. Um, I was a cheerleader in high school, and I was captain. And um, in college, I ran track again, and I also played on the women's basketball team. Okay. Until the pesky little labs that we had to go to got in the way. And my mother sort of suggested that at 5'4", the chances of me being recruited to a basketball team were probably pretty slim, so I should go to lab. So let me ask you this question. After that. Yeah. So let me ask you this question. You attended Augustana College, and you did a lot of international travel. So did. did you find that you had wanderlust in you or did wanderlust kind of pull you over there where you became really enamored of traveling internationally? 
You know, I think I, I think it found me. And and I think, you know, I, so we had a foreign quarter where you could go to and in that in that particular year it was South America. And I think it was four faculty members and they took 60 students. And I was only 18 at the time, although I was in my second year of college. And I we, we went on this trip and every two weeks we went to a different country. And so we were actually studying about those particular areas and we were right there in the midst of those areas, just studying the geography, geology, history, and the language. So it was a fantastic experience. And um, after going all throughout South America, we came back to Augustana, which you know is a very small school, and it felt very, you know, tight after that, if you will. Um, but it was a great experience. And then I did a lot of eye missions um, to different um, areas in Central and South America. I've done them in Haiti. I've done them in. Um, um, I've gone to South Africa, uh, a number of other areas. And then I also did some travel with my mother, who uh, was a CEO of a mental health agency, uh, worked her way up to that point. And part of their work was they did some work with um, different social work groups who happened to, uh, who were embracing different issues. One of the trips that was the most interesting for me was I went to South Africa with her uh, right after apartheid change. And they were going, her team was going to help train the social workers there to deal with some of the um, depression and some of the alcoholism that was going to manifest. They predicted would manifest when things didn't change overnight. Um, and that was, that was really an, an eye-opening experience for me, going so soon after that, that transition. Uh, what, a, what a great set of stories around travel. You have equally interesting stories about practice. You've, you've done a lot. You started in a hospital-based ODMD co-management practice, and you had hospital privileges. I think many optometrists don't even know what that means. Uh, some have it. Many don't. Tell me a little bit about that practice setting and the hospital privileges part of it. Yeah, so when I, I started in this practice, which was actually a great way to start, that was my first job out of optometry school. It was two older ophthalmologists and one younger an older optometrist and older ophthalmologist, and the two of them tended to work together. And then there was a younger ophthalmologist, and he and I worked together. And it was interesting. He told me he had actually trained in the Indian Health Services with optometrists. And he said, I'm going to tell you, I, um, I trained with the optometrists in this Indian Health Services, and I know what the optometry residents know how to do. And so I expect you to practice to the fullest extent of your capabilities so that I can practice to the fullest extent of mine. And that's how we're going to grow this practice. So that was the expectation. So I went to the hospital and I said, I need to have hospital privileges. And they said, we don't have hospital privileges. We don't have any rules for optometrists. And I said, well, I'll write them then. And I wrote the rules. I wrote the privileges, which included things like um, assisting in surgery, Etc. And they passed it. And those, that's really the foundation. I understand. I know someone who's still on faculty now, and those rules are still the foundation for the rules that they have today. And that was in the 90s. <laughs> so, uh, but I did all the pre-op care, post-op care um, for all the cataract surgeries, the uh, corneal transplants. We did quite a few of those. Uh, we had a lot of diabetic patients, glaucoma patients. Um, foreign bodies because we're in a steel mill community. So I, these, some of these guys were slow learners. You know, I would have the discussion with them about put on your safety glasses, do not take them off until you walk out of that place. But they would always leave and they come back to fix one more machine. And then, you know, something would happen. So, I mean, I was taking these things out. But, you know, the ophthalmologist said, do not call me out of surgery to come and take a foreign body out. That's something you have to handle. So I, that's how I started practicing. And um, so I had a pretty strong medical model practice myself when I did end up um, buying a practice. Let's talk about that. You ended up in private practice. Um, I assume that your medical model followed you. Um, did you do any other specialties? What was your private practice like? Well, uh, the, the whole way to get into that practice was interesting. So I, I moved to, actually, I was doing a mission in Costa Rica, and I met a couple who were in the mission, and they were an older couple, and they wanted to sell their practice in Evanston. That's how I got there. 
And I said, well, you know, I'll go and work part-time just to see if the community is receptive to me. I like the community. Um, and I did. And I, I moved there and we actually weren't able to work through an arrangement that worked for both of us. So one day out of frustration, I was walking down the street in the opposite direction that I usually walk. And one of the things you asked me about is my hobbies. I like to walk. So, but I walked in a different direction and I saw this small practice and I'd never noticed it before. So I just walked in the door and there was this kind of like older, like 70-ish year old man who was kind of like, um, he said, may I help you? And I said, and I, I have no idea how I mustered the courage to do this, but I said, do you have any intentions of retiring anytime soon? And, you know, before he threw me out of the office, he did say, <laughs> well, I know that you're a competitor down the street from me. And if uh, you do leave that space, because I told him I was planning on leaving, uh, he said, then you come back and talk to me. And um, I did leave just like I told him I would. And he actually reached out to me and Five weeks later from that conversation, I owned his practice and he was my employee. Wow. <laughs> and did you stay in that space or did you move over time? No, he had actually been in that space for almost 40 years. And we did some uh, renovations to the space to make it um, more palatable for two people. Um, one of the reasons that I insisted that I buy the practice and then employ him rather than us being partners is because I knew that there would be some resistance in terms of making an investment in making sure the patients have the right type of experience from my perspective. And that's, that would involve investing in technology, you know, bringing in state-of-the-art type equipment and making sure the patient again had a pleasant experience. And um, he was not going to be willing to make that investment at that juncture in his career. He was almost, you know, working, he was still working every day, but not really, you know, not really the same way he had years earlier. So um, the area that we were in was a pretty affluent area and the real estate on that street was very expensive. But I remember him saying, you know, I've been paying rent for 40 years. And, you know, if you ever have an opportunity to buy something on this street, hock your soul and do it. You know, so um, we got to the point where we were sort of stepping over each other and I saw a building that I liked and I called my realtor about it. And she said, well, that's great that you like that building, a nice corner building with a pharmacy on one side and a, a hardware store on the other, which is the two areas that you want to get close to when you're buying real estate, because that's where people need to go. Um, and she said, well, that building is not available. And I said, well, that's the building that I want. And a week later, that building came on the market. Wow. I she we jumped on it and made an offer and gulp. It was super expensive, but you know, my, my mother said, do the numbers work before you decide whether it's expensive or not. Do the numbers work? You know, because we had there were there were tenants in the building. You know, the pharmacy was going to be a tenant. There were several other buildings, uh, uh businesses in there. And once I ran the numbers, the numbers did work. So it was just a matter of you know, uh, making the commitment to, you know, purchases. I was a single woman at that time. So I, I did it and, you know, I've not had any regrets. You know, it's a great lesson for independent optometrists who choose to be in business themselves that the real estate side can be really challenging, but it can bring tremendous opportunity. And it is about doing the math and being level-headed about it. That's wonderful for you. Do you happen to still own the building? Because we're going to talk next about your post-practice life. Do you still own it? I do. I do still own the building and there's actually still an eye care uh, practice there. So now there's been an eye care practice on that street that's affiliated with me and uh, the former owner for over 70 years, seven zero. That's wonderful. <laughs> so I feel good about the continuity there and just making sure that that uh, the patients still have access to that type of uh, um, practice. I, I was going to circle back to your question about the, the traveling um, and just mention that I think that traveling has is in some ways shaped and developed who I am as a person, the fact that I love people. 
and then I'm, you know, I've had to depend on the kindness of strangers many times, and I've certainly uh, tried to help people in the same way, especially when I see someone that's, you know, foreign or, you know, to the area and struggling to, to find their way around. I had a really crazy story, funny story in Japan, where I was on a, a train going to Kamakura, and the train stopped suddenly. And it was like the, the L train in Chicago, you know, it was a train like that. <laughs> and the train stopped, and everybody Japanese got off the train. And I looked around, there was only like a few people who looked American, <laughs> still on the train. And then all of a sudden, this older Japanese lady got back on the train and grabbed me by the hand and pulled me off the train. <laughs> but I guess the train was broken. And I just didn't understand, you know, what, what they were saying. But there's just been multi, my mother and I were in Sweden, uh, you know, there's just been all kinds of situations like that. But I've been on through five of the seven continents to over 50 countries. And I feel really blessed to have had those experiences. What are the two continents that are left? Uh, uh, Antarctica and um, Australia, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I guess there's also uh, some speculation as to whether or not there's one more continent. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but I've, I've heard that. <laughs> we'll get into the geography battles of, of that uh, specialty. Yes. <laughs> so one of the things that makes your career really compelling to me and something for which I'm really grateful for is that you left practice and went on to join industry, you know, stalwarts in how they work with our colleagues. And the first was Johnson & Johnson Division. What was that like, a first time out of practice doing this kind of industry work? Um. A steep climb, even though I had spent a considerable amount of time actually consulting for them. I consulted for them as a professional affairs consultant for 10 years before I actually be, went to work for them. And so I felt like I knew the sales team. I knew the dynamics of the company, but it's nothing like actually being physically in there. That, 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 that's when you really learn the dynamics. I think it would have been a really steep climb, especially since at the level that I went in, if I had not had that tenure of experience prior to. So I had done also in-market assessments uh, for uh, different technologies that they were, or innovations that they were considering bringing to the market. Um, my practice was a testing site for, for some of those uh, innovations. So I had gotten, my, my patients were used to, okay, what are we gonna try this time? You know, you know what's happening this year? Um, they've sort of gotten used to that. And I consulted for a number of companies primarily because I've always believed that um, it's incumbent upon us as part of the oath that we take when we're safeguarding that patient to make sure that we also work directly with industry to ensure that the products and services that are developed are really going to be um, in the best for the patients. And patients depend on us to make sure that when we're bringing something or introducing something to them or making a recommendation or diagnosing or treating, that we're doing that from a space of, of, of knowing. And for me, that space of knowing was actively in touching and feeling and getting involved, understanding the missions of these companies. Why are you in business? What's your mission? Does it match mine? Are we trying to do the same types of things? And so once I established that, um, Johnson & Johnson, to me, had, um, with their credo, matched my own mission of wanting to provide the absolute best services to, to my patients in the community. And I will tell you, Scott, that was one of the hardest decisions, probably the hardest decision I've ever made in life, because I do consider myself a clinician. I do consider myself a healer. And um, not going into clinical practice, not staying in clinical practice was just not something I thought I would do. Although I really, really enjoy being involved with industry and being able to uh, be a bridge, if you will, to closer and better communication between the profession and the industry. And that's actually one of my patients when I gave notice that I was going to be leaving. One of my patients said, um, Dr. Knight, my husband left me, but never in a million years did I think you would leave me. <laughs> just like, oh my God. And, but, you know, on one of those days when I was at kind of my lowest, <laughs> one of the patients said to me, you know, you've always been interested in making sure that we had great innovations and great products. 
And I just see what you're doing next is just ensuring that we still get that, but doing it on a bigger level. And, you know, I was like, that's it. You know, that's exactly what I needed to hear that day. Um, so, you know, that's, that was kind of the, tr the transition. And then, you know, my husband was, uh, we had a small child at that time. My son was five. And he said, you know, you've always been interested in working with industry. You've been consulting for a number of companies. And if we're ever going to do this, this is the time. You know, this is the time that we can actually move him. Um, and I'm at a point where I'm willing to support you, know, you doing that. That's wonderful. And it just was a beginning because today you're senior vice president for customer development for Essilor of America. And I like how you describe this to me. You bring the voice of the doctor as the chief optometric officer. So the first thing I think of is, does a company that large take the ample amount of time that's necessary to really understand both the doctor's needs and the multifactorial changes that exist, you know, challenges that exist in a practice? Yeah, you know, I, I do think that they do try and do that. But you don't know what you don't know. So if you don't have a person like me that can say, um, that's a great idea, but it's not going to work because of A, B, and C. Or if I can redirect and say, you know, this is the primary focus that optometrists have top of mind. These are their chief concerns. This is what they have to navigate every day. In addition to the fact that we may want to sell a product to them that we believe is great, how is it going to fit in with the dynamics of the practice? Is it going to be disruptive? How are we going to make sure that the staff are trained? You know, the doctor might come back enthusiastic. You know how we, we are. We'll come back enthusiastic with this new toy or this new thing that we want to try. And the staff roll their eyes because now you've just added one more thing to their plate that, you know, they're already trying to balance so many different things. So part of what my team does is we make sure that the eye care professionals that work on that doctor's team are trained on different areas. We take that off their plate. We make sure that they're trained on not just products, and that's one of the things I really like about our, our program, but we train them on metrics, uh, particularly the managers of the, of, the, of the practices. These are the types of things that you need to take, be, uh, keep track of so that you can help grow the practice. And that's one thing that comes off the doctor's plate. And that's really, we've had some great success with that program. Um, we also have a CEOD program which also helps the doctor then look at the metrics that they should be doing and helps them um, get comfortable with delegating better. Not running tests, not doing tests. You should be interpreting. You should be having the conversations. You should be making the recommendations. You are the doctor. You should be treating and managing, not running tests. So, does that sound like a soapbox? <laughs> no, it sounds great because, I mean, in, in a nutshell, what you said is, an industry company, even a large one like that, really does take the time to learn the things maybe they didn't know and then apply instruction back to the doctors in a way that they can apply in their business. So it's a it's a symbiotic relationship that is a, a really important one to understand. And then now, I, it, one of the things that I really um, applaud Essilor for is that they have made the commitment to put um, a doctor, an optometrist on the senior management team. Um, all companies don't do that. But my feeling is you're developing products and services for these individuals. You must have their input. So outside of optometry, you're a certified holistic health coach. Can you educate us about what that means? Yeah, I just got my certification yesterday. Look at that plaque. <laughs> So I was actually um, a certified health coach even um, initially back in 2011 as I just recertified. Um, my patients, and I've always had this philosophy too, I've always believed in looking at the whole person. I think optometrists should look at the whole person while focusing on the eyes. I watch patients when they walk through the door, I watch their gait, I watch their mannerisms. I watch all of those things because that gives me valuable information when I'm coming up with the diagnosis for, for them. Um, that's why I've been able to diagnose high blood pressure on patients with strokes, you know, just a myriad of things. But I think we just have to, as we look as optometrists as be, becoming a broader part of the fabric of the healthcare system, we have to look at the whole patient. And I was fortunate in that my patients actually wanted to be actively engaged in their own healthcare. You know, they didn't want to just take a drop for glaucoma and then two drops and then three drops and then be referred for surgery, you know. 
they wanted to know why do I have this chronic inflammatory condition and what can I do to contribute to that? So that was the way that I, I thought for myself. And I felt a little disingenuous because I'd always sort of married uh, and balanced an integrative approach to holistic and natural care, particularly around nutrition with conventional care. Um, so I decided to become the health coach, and I also did a fellowship with the American Academy of Anti-Aging Regenerative Medicine. And in that fellowship, um, most of the people in the fellowship, most of the doctors in the fellowships were actually internal medicine physicians. And uh, I remember one class in particular, we had a PhD who was instructing us from Harvard, and he didn't know I was an optometrist in there, but anyway, he's just talking to the group. He says, you know, I'm a doctor, but I'm a PhD, but if I'm a doctor like you all, if I'm internal medicine, I'd be hooking up with an optometrist. And I thought, <laughs> and he said, because my research shows, first of all, optometrists have slit lamps and they know how to use them. My research that I'm working on right now shows that there are particular conditions um, in the eyes that are directly correlated with early onset or biomarkers, if you will, uh, for conditions systemically. So for instance, those patients who have early onset nuclear sclerotic cataracts also have a higher probability of cardiovascular disease. And if you were working directly with an optometrist and they can identify that for you earlier, they could, you could, they, that optometrist could get that patient to you and get you under care before they end up having some catastrophic incident. And the same thing with post-subcapsular cataracts. The beta amyloid plaque that's seen on the back surface of that lens is also the same beta amyloid plaque that's seen in early Alzheimer's. So optometrists are such an important part of the healthcare system, but we don't act that way. And I really would love to see us really step up to the plate we're super smart. Uh, patients trust us, um, and you know we we should be functioning in a in a stronger as a stronger force in the healthcare system. So, for the audience members who are compelled by this, what would be the one thing they should do when they get done listening to your interview that would get them started down that path? I think that they should first of all examine the mission that they have in their in, in their practices, and if you don't have a mission. You need to get one so that you know that um, you are actually moving along a course. And if you run into some challenges or if you have uh, a decision to make, you look back at your mission, it tells you what to do. Um, if you don't know about nutrition, uh, if you don't feel comfortable in that space, I, I would encourage everyone to learn a little bit more about that. Often patients think that, well, my physician didn't say anything about that. Well, my physicians don't get a lot of um, nutrition in, in, with, within the, the coursework that they have. Uh, and, but that's a, such an important part, particularly when we see the increasing number of patients with diabetes and diabetic-related sequelae. Um, a lot of that is lifestyle and nutrition-based. And why not get that information from an optometrist? You know, we did a program, I did a program once at J&J &J, uh, where we worked with Johnson & Johnson Vision, Johnson & Johnson Diabetes Institute, and the AOA. And we identified doctors around the country that were part of the AOA and asked them if they would uh, participate in this study where the optometrist was the one who actually introduced the glucometer to the, to the patient and started them, if, if they identified, first of all, if the patient um, had uh, some signs of diabetes in the eyes, or if the patient told them that they hadn't been compliant. You know, the one, the one organ, the one sense that, that patients don't want to lose is the vision. And that's why we're so important because, you know, the endocrinologist can tell them all day long that their blood glucose levels are high, you've got to control your A1C, I'm going to pull out a picture from their OptiMap or from something else uh, and, and show them this is what your eye looks like. And this is going to mean you will be blind. And, you know, they kind of get religion when they, you know, see something like that, because that's, that's the last thing that they want to have happen. So I want to talk to you about your son again. Um, He's got these incredible role models. He's a young black man, a teenager, early teenager. Um, that's got a profound impact on him, I'm sure. But can you tell us about parenting today uh, in our environment and 
how you feel about his future. I, I'm sure he's got that same intelligence chain coming down to him that's come from others. But tell us about that a little bit. Well, it's funny, you know, so you and I graduated around the same time. So God has a sense of humor. We have this little kid, right, still. Uh, but, you know, my mother says you take your blessings when they come. Um, I was a later in life mother. And uh, it's interesting. My, so my son uh, was born in 2008. So for the first eight years of his life, the president of the country was a black man that looked like him. But that was just normal to him. Um, most of my family members, are between my husband and I, our family, uh, their 10 children all have at least a college degree, some multiple master's degrees. And so, at, you know, it's just... And, and he's his best friend on our street was mother was German, father's Irish. And they did everything together. Um, they're two months apart in age. So that's just normal to him. Um, but more recently, he has really been, I think, disturbed by some of the things he's seen with the, for instance, with the George Floyd um, murder and death um, with um the riots at the Capitol um, and mixed in with the COVID and then us having to uh, relocate for, for my job and being in a completely new environment. And he's a trooper. He's um, a really good athlete. He's very smart, particularly in math. Um, and he's good at making friends. But uh, I was really, it's, it's heartbreaking in, the, in that I feel like I have to watch him a lot closer than I think my parents had to watch me um, just because, um, A, we're in an environment we don't know as well um, with, with COVID that has caused him some stress and anxiety. Um, but he said to me the other day, mom, between COVID and black men being killed, I, I'm afraid to go outside. And I, I mean, it just broke my heart. And my husband and I started having the talk and um, any black person knows what that means. The talk is, is you know, having a conversation about um, how you will be viewed differently than some of your friends and how you can't get away with some of the things that your friends might get away with. If you are ever stopped by the police, you put your hands and we tell them exactly how you put your hands in the position. You don't make any quick moves. You don't say anything back. Um, even if you're completely not, you know, have done nothing wrong. Um, you, our, our concern, even though it's, it's a um, emotionally devastating experience to have these things happen to you, but what's most important to us is that you come home alive, safe and alive. And so we've had to have those discussions, but I can see his little spirit, like he's a confident, strong boy, but I, 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 I see his spirit sort of, um, I don't know how to, how to describe it, but it's, it's a look in his eyes that uh, tell, tell me that he knows that the world is going to be different for him. And so um, that's part of the reason why I have more recently spoken about some of the experiences that I've had that I haven't shared prior to, because I don't feel that I have the luxury anymore of being quiet about those things. These things are real. They happen to all people, not just uh, that person or that type of person. You know, we like to, to classify that there's a particular person that has an issue with the police. But I can tell you that I, I have, uh, my father and I used to go on father-daughter dates. And one day afterwards, I was an adult, so I was in my own car. Um, we were leaving um, a restaurant and my dad had had two drinks. I had had two drinks also, but mine were cranberry juice. And so I was driving behind him, um, heading home, and the police pulled him over. You know, my heart starts racing because I don't know why. So I pulled over as well. And the police officer starts walking toward the car with his beat stick in his hand. And he's doing like this, walking toward the car. And I'm watching and I don't know what to do because I don't want to startle them. Um, but I also don't want my dad to be hurt. So I hear them ask for license registration. I see my dad reach for it. 
And then I see another police officer come up to the other side of the car. And I had a fraction of a second, you know, just like 30 seconds to make a decision. Do I intervene or do I just sit here and wait for something to escalate out of control? And it happens so fast that, you know, uh, it can one minute, one second, you can be in a calm situation and it can go out of control really quickly. So I made the decision, maybe not the best decision, but I got out of the car and I loudly announced as I was walking forward, um, asking if there was a problem and that that was my father. And, you know, the, the, the police officers seemed a little startled because they were so invested in this situation that they hadn't even noticed that I was behind them. But anyway, we, I was able to talk to them and let them know what we were doing and that I was, you know, following him home. And that what I said to the officer was that, officer, I'm, I'm just following to make sure my home, father gets home safely. And I'm sure that that's what you want as well. So he said, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> and um, and so then we, but then I asked him, you know, I'm not sure why we were stopped. And he sort of stammered out, um, um, he failed to uh, pause at the stop sign. Well, I did, I was right behind him. So whatever my dad did, I did also. But anyway, it was just, that was, I can't even describe how frightening that was. But I, I made a decision in a five-second time slot to intervene knowing that there was a possibility that both of us could die in that situation. But that's a decision that I was willing to make. That's interesting. Um, it, it's interesting for you to juxtapose the current state your son's in to what you experienced as a child and wonder if it's, it's worse now um, all I know is that I hope that he creates the better world for all of us <clears throat> that I know young people of his abilities can. And, uh, I'm sure you're very proud of him. It'll be interesting to see him continue to grow and go on and make a difference. I, I'm sure you're very proud of him. I am. And he doesn't, he doesn't seem to feel encumbered by any of those things. He doesn't, all of his friends are multiracial. He doesn't seem to, to see those differences. And uh, as a matter of fact, the first time that he was in a school where it was majority white students, I, he came home from school and I asked him um, about his experience. And he said, there's another Matthew. And I said, really? Well, what's he like? And he said, well, I said, is he like you or is he different? And he said, he's different. And I said, how's he different? And he said, he wore a white shirt. This kid was blonde and blue-eyed. What was different about him? That's interesting. White shirt. <laughs> I'm thrilled that optometry <laughs> is starting to embrace the idea of diversity. Um, and our schools and colleges are the lead of that. And um, mm -hmm. I can't wait to see where that goes. But as I think about optometry, I think about um, my question to you in a pre-interview was, what's the biggest threat to optometry? And you've answered the same way that some other very important optometrists in my life have answered it, which is, you said optometry is the primary th threat to optometry. Will you give us your perspective on that? So I think optometrists, first of all, I just want to say are super smart, intelligent, bright individuals. And there are a lot of pain points that come up within our practice settings. But for some reason, we depend on other people to solve them instead of coming up with new innovations, thinking through the situation, working together to solve those issues. You know, I think about, uh, you know, when we were first looking at going into EHRs, I mean, you took the initiative to establish one and, and you saw a problem and you tried to fix it. And I think more of us need to do that. Um, we don't uh, contribute to the, this is a legislative profession, you know, um, 20% of, of us do the work, the, the legislative work. You know, when I was in practice, every legislator on the north, south, east, and west side of me, couldn't go too much further east because I was close to the lake, uh, were patients. And they were patients because I asked them. I went, to their, I, I went to their offices. I visited them. I talked about Senate bill, blah, 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 or this bill, and these are the things that, that optometrists are 
fully qualified to do, trained to do, should be doing, and we do a great job at doing it. And I'm inviting you to my office so that you can experience it firsthand. And you know, every single person I gave that invitation to came to the office and many of them stayed as patients. My US Congresswoman was a patient in the office the entire time that I owned that practice. So first of all, all we have to do is ask, but you also, you are a subject matter expert for them. And when they need help with something, uh, my um, state senator came to me once and said that she got a, a written complaint about an optometrist and she didn't know how to handle it. I read the letter that she got and I asked her if she wouldn't mind if I wrote the letter back on her behalf. And she said, please do. So I did. I wrote the letter on her behalf explaining why it's, in, it was all about uh, releasing a contact lens prescription. And, you know, this person was a PhD and they said, you know, I know, I'm a PhD, I know when my eyes have changed. And so I pointed out in the letter the, 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 the myriad of things that we look at in addition to your numbers changing, um, you know, the, the ocular health, the systemic health, the fact that there are over 260 diseases that can be detected through the eyes, and that's systemic diseases, not eye diseases. So I just was able to point out those that information for her. So um, anything I asked her afterwards, you know, she was, you know, can you support this bill? Can you? She was on. She was uh, willing to do that. Um, so uh, we just have to understand the power, the influence that we have, and be willing to put ourselves out there. Um, you got to eat a lot of chicken dinners. You got to go to the fundraisers. You got to pay for them. But 20% of the profession should not have to carry the 80% that do nothing but complain. Well, that's a great point of view. Let's advocate for ourselves. So last mm -hmm. question. This is done. You've got an evening coming up. Uh, would you rather go for a long walk next to a lake or would you rather read a, a, another book? Oh, my God, that's hard. I love, I love books, but... I think I'd take the walk. Uh, it's, you know, not only is it good for you to get out and get some air, but I, I do some of my best thinking when I'm walking. <laughs> Great advice. Well, Millie, Dr. Millicent Knight, I can't thank you enough. On behalf of everyone that's listening, we really appreciate your thoughtful stories and this really inspiring career, which continues on our behalf. Thank you so much for being on Sandbox Stories. Dr. Jens, thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. And to my audience, as always, thanks for attending and listening through this entire Sandbox story. Until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.